Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, hey there, friend. I was hoping you'd be by. It's National Beer Day today, wouldn't you know it? So who better to have on than our leisurely pal, Frederick Pangborn, floating around in his pool down there crushing beers. Seems only appropriate, you know. Good point, Chester. Sounds kind of like you. Shit, you're like the Frederick Pangborn of Texas, if you ask me. Well, come on in, friend. No leisure for you, boy, tonight. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's better. All right, so smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom, y'all. <laughs> oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know... True Blood Stark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. So tonight we join a family on a road trip. Our pal Kyle hopes to take a shortcut, but ends up a little too far off the beaten path for their taste. So without further delay, I give you, from author Frederick Pangborn, Human Vultures. The drive back from Lindsay's parents in Vermont was to my displeasure delayed. Instead of leaving at noon as I had hoped, our departure time was pushed back to just after three. I did everything I could to contain the frustration of her lackadaisical efforts to pack up her belongings and to get Stacy, our six-year-old daughter, ready as she continued engaging in lengthy conversations with her mother and father instead of gathering up her possessions and shoving them into her travel bags. I understand that she only sees her parents once a year. I do. 
but she fails to realize or to take into consideration that I'm the one who has to navigate most of that grueling 600 plus mile drive all the way back to Pittsburgh. This all stemming from her phobic fear of flying. Oh, and for the record, I hate long car rides. I'll usually push through until we get close to the Pennsylvania border. Then we switch up the driving duties for a while as I rest up before taking the wheel once more. Her driving skills are, how should I say, subpar. So I endure the lengthy drive for my own feeling of safety and peace of mind. A few times I caught myself unknowingly snapping at her back at the house when she ignored my regular and subtle persuasions for her to pick up the pace. These remarks were met with a glare that would shame that of Medusa herself, so I bit my tongue and tried to speed up the process by taking it upon myself to run our belongings out to our Honda Accord and packing them in the trunk. Needless to say, we left later than I had wanted to, and the tension between us was finally ebbing 30 minutes after we had crossed into upstate New York. In a desperate attempt to lessen our 11-hour journey and make up for lost time, I left Route 87 just south of Plattsburgh and crossed over the Adirondacks, hoping this new, less-traveled route would expedite the trip back home. It's getting dark out so early now, she remarked as she was gazing out her window and watching the endless expansion of dense forest whisk by. I had wanted to comment on how we would have had more daylight to travel in if she hadn't thrown a wrench into my departure time, but decided it was best to leave that argument alone. Yeah, going to be darker even earlier once we set the clocks back in two weeks, I replied. Is that in two weeks? Yep. I threw a quick glance into my mirror and saw that Stacy was already fast asleep and slumped against the driver's side door. God, I wish that were me right now. Hey. Lindsay began. I'm not trying to start an argument, but... I know I pissed you off about us not leaving earlier, and I just wanted you to know that I'm sorry. It wasn't my intention, but I just missed him so much, and it's so hard for me to just pick up and leave on a designated time. I could hardly believe what I was hearing. I figured at this point, with her unforeseen confession, that I might as well meet her halfway. I know, when I don't enjoy pulling you away like that either, but... You have to understand that I hate these long drives and- Jesus Christ! She suddenly exclaimed. Kyle, did you see that? No, what? My eyes were quickly scanning the road ahead of us with extreme intensity for some unknown hazard ahead that may have eluded my attention. Back there. She was now twisting in her seat and looking to the stretch of road behind us. There was a dead deer or something on the side of the road. I exhaled loudly as the impending threat that I thought was upon us was nothing more than a roadkill. Babe, there are dead deer all over the place up here. This is God's country, no man's land. They're all over the place. No, I know that. She returned to her normal sitting position and looked at me with a worried look now masking her face. But it looked like there was someone or something crouching over it. Someone or something? I was now throwing glances in the rearview mirror. Yeah, it looked like... Yeah? Like they were eating it. Her words fading as they concluded. Eating it? 
She said nothing, but the look on her face told me she believed that was what she saw. Lindsay, it was probably some hunter who shot that deer and tracked it to the road. Maybe he was... I scrambled for some reasonable explanation to what she had obviously imagined. Getting ready to gut it or put it out of its misery. Gut it? I don't know. I turned to her. But whatever you thought you saw, it definitely... Kyle, look out! I whirled my head back to the direction of the road in front of me, but it was too late. Laying across my lane was a length of a thick, leafless tree branch. I had to be doing about 60, yet I could still make out the details of the dead branch and its pointed limbs as the world momentarily lapsed into slow motion just before I drove over it. I could feel the snapping branch and its limbs scraping and jabbing at the car's undercarriage as it passed beneath. I braked and quickly swerved the car to the side of the road. Behind me, I could hear Stacy crying. Is everyone all right? I nervously asked as I turned to Lindsay and then to Stacy in the back seat. Yeah, we're good. Lindsay stated as she was leaning into the back seat and calming our daughter. Okay, I said to myself as I tried to shake off the adrenaline rush that was causing my hands to tremble. I unbuckled my seatbelt and climbed from the car. Where are you going? Lindsay asked as she was pushing Stacy's long blonde bangs from her face. I'm just going to check the car for damage. The car surprisingly seemed to be without any major damage. The front bumper was scratched all to hell, but I could live with that. It wasn't until I heard a hissing noise from somewhere within that I popped the hood and saw that one of the branch's pointed limbs had caused a small puncture in the lower radiator hose. A thin stream of green boiling hot radiator fluid was shooting from the damaged hose and splattering onto the ground. Shit! I hissed as angrily as the fluid being spewed. I stepped back and looked around to the surrounding area. Nothing. No man's land as I had stated earlier. It was only a matter of time before the radiator would drain itself and the engine would overheat. Is everything okay? Lindsay called out as she leaned out her window. No, not really, I replied, trying to keep the anger of the whole ordeal bottled up. No sense exploding at this point. I needed to act as soon as possible as I was on borrowed time. I decided to take my chances and continue driving, hoping to come across some town before the car died. Closing the hood, I quickly climbed back inside the car and pulled back onto the road. What was it? Lindsay asked. Stacy was wiping the remnants of tears from her eyes and looking at some picture books we had packed for her. <sighs> the branch poked a hole in the radiator hose. We need to find a town before the car dies, I stated as I started eyeing the cooling gauge. Kyle, we can't get stranded out here in the middle of nowhere. Not with Stacy. I'll call my parents. Her voice was already taking on a worrisome tone. I doubt you'll get a signal out here, babe. The needle in the coolant gauge was already beginning to move to the right and away from the center line. The knotted mixture of tension and frustration was growing inside of me. I realized how unknowingly tight my hands were on the steering wheel and relaxed my grip. Nothing, she said in a defeated tone, dropping her arm, which held her cell phone onto her lap. 
What are we going to do, Kyle? I felt my emotions getting the best of me and gritted my teeth. How the fuck do I know? What would you like me to do? Was the response I wanted to bark at her, but the situation needn't be made worse by my angered frustration. I was taking in a deep breath as an attempt to calm myself before answering her. That was when she spoke. Oh my god, Kyle, look! Thank god! She was jabbing a finger at the windshield. Up ahead, a posted sign read, Balance, five miles. What were the chances? I exhaled heavily and even forced a smile. The powers that be were smiling upon us, so it seemed. I felt her touch my arm and saw that she too was forcing a smile of relief. The coolant needle was hovering just before the H when we pulled off the main road and onto the exit to balance. We must have gone another two miles before the needle was buried to the right and I felt the car buck slightly as it was preparing to shut down. The last of its fluid drained. I pulled the car over to the shoulder and turned it off. The clock on the dash read 5.32. The sun was hovering just above the distant treetops. It would be dark soon. Real dark. Why are we stopping, Dad? You run over another tree? Stacy's voice came from the back seat. <laughs> Lindsay and I both laughed at her inquisitive question. <laughs> no, baby. Daddy didn't run over any trees. And I turned to Lindsay. I say instead of sitting here all night hoping that someone drives by, that we should walk the rest of the way. It's got to be three miles at the most. It'll be so dark out soon that you won't be able to see your hand in front of your face. Yeah, let's do that. I don't want to be out here in the dark. Do you think there's a hotel in town? I have no idea, babe. I know as much as you do about this town. I climbed out of the car and did a quick check on the essentials that I would need when we got into town. My wallet and the car keys were about all I would need. Lindsay was helping Stacy out. Should we bring any of the bags? Nah, unless you want to carry them all the way into town. When we get there, we'll find the garage and have someone drive us back for them. With the car locked up, we began walking along the shoulder of the road towards town. The road, I noticed, was void of any street lights, and tactfully I urged the girls to hasten their step. The thought of walking blindly in the dark in this desolate country didn't sit well with me. With the worst-case scenario being stranded out on the main road no longer an issue, we engaged in playful conversations as we walked. At least it was some comfort knowing that some form of civilization awaited us a few miles down the road. We had probably traveled close to a mile when the road rose, and from the crest of the hill I glimpsed distant lights, presumably the town through the trees. It still seemed a long way off, but at least I had seen a sign of it. The sun was sinking fast now, and darkened shadows were stretching from the thick line of trees to either side of us. Inside, past the trees nearest the road, the forest was a realm of pitch black. I found myself throwing quick glances into the tree line as a dreadful feeling of vulnerability was sprouting in the pit of my stomach. We were nearing the base of the hill where I had seen the town's lights when the faint and growing sound of an engine could be made out behind us. 
We stopped and turned to see a set of headlights appear from above us. I instantly took a step out onto the road and began to wave the vehicle down. I could hear the vehicle, which I made out to be an old Ford Bronco, decelerate as it neared. It pulled up next to us, stopping in the street. The driver was reaching over his seat and opening the passenger door. I grabbed the ajar door and opened it fully. That's your car back there I just passed? Asked the driver. He was a large, heavyset man. His belly protruded from his open flannel jacket and was pressed against the steering wheel. He tilted his Buffalo Bills cap back under his plump, unshaven face as he asked. Yes, it is, I replied. I ran over a tree branch back on the main road and it put a hole in the radiator hose. Luckily, the turn off to town wasn't far off. Hell, I owned a garage in town. I'm Troy, Troy Sommer. You and your wife and daughter had best climb in. I'll drive you all the rest of the way. Well, thank you. I'm Kyle, Kyle Manning. As I stepped aside, Sommer was pushing the passenger seat forward, giving us access to the back seat. I let Lindsay and Stacy take the back and introduced them as they climbed in. After their introductions, we shook hands and I took the seat next to them. I now noticed the interior smelled of gasoline. Putting the truck back in the drive, we continued down the road. Good thing you folks weren't out here when it got dark. Not safe to be out here in the dark, Somer stated. Because of the bears? Stacy asked from the back. Somer laughed at her question. Yep, there's bears out here. Black bears and coyotes. There are other things out here too that you don't want to come across at night either, little miss. It's a good thing I happened along. Is there a hotel in town? Asked Lindsay. We ain't got no hotel like a Howard Johnson's or Holiday Inn. The balance is a small town, miss. Miss Layton has a place where you can rent a room. She's reasonable. What can we do about our car? I asked, taking my gaze from the window. Well, you all get yourselves a room for the night, and first thing in the morning I'll head back out here with the tow truck and bring your car in. Then we'll see what's what. Sound good? Yes, and thank you again for picking us up, I said. I ain't nothing. Just glad I came across you all before it got too dark out. You don't want to be out here in the dark. Nope. Somer had driven us into town just as night had officially taken stage and laid its thick, Stygian blanket over the countryside, past the borders of this small town called Balance, where the illuminated streetlights provided an essence of civilization. The world beyond these brick-and-mortar buildings was a void of impenetrable black. Only the sound of chirping crickets and a few nocturnal birds emerged from the night far from the electric lights. As we drove down the main boulevard through town, Somer pointed out a few of the more important buildings on our route to Mrs. Layton's place. The municipal building, the medical clinic, and even his own garage that sat nestled on the corner. It was, by all standards, a quaint and picturesque little town. I surmised from what I had seen that there could be no more than a thousand residents in all. 
Sommer turned off a few blocks away from the main drag and pulled up to a large Victorian-style house set away from the cluster of local businesses and more toward the edge of town. Well, here we are, he stated as he put the truck in the park and climbed out. I woke up with and introduced you to Miss Layton. The four of us stood under the lone light of the lengthy porch as Summer rang the doorbell. A pair of rocking chairs sat to our right, a small table between them. I envisioned a relaxing afternoon could easily be spent in those chairs. Through the distorted glass in the door, we could glimpse a movement as someone approached. Miss Layton was easily in her seventies. She was slender and stood at just under five feet. She was a petite little thing. Her gray hair pulled back into a bun. Her pink-framed glasses were as thick as her lenses. Somer introduced the three of us and explained our unfortunate situation. Ms. Layton then stated that she had a room available to accommodate us, and with that being completed, Somer paid us a farewell and said he would stop by in the morning to pick me up and take me back to the car. We agreed at nine the next morning. As he walked off the porch and back to his truck, Ms. Layton escorted us inside. That's a shame about your car. Where are you folks from? Layton asked as she moved around the hickory wood counter that was set up in the house's front room near a staircase that rose to the second floor. Pittsburgh, Lindsay answered. Ah, okay. Never been there myself. Not a fan of the big city. She adjusted her glasses and proceeded to open the leather-bound register book. Don't get too many people coming through balance. Mostly folk who need to stop in for a rest during their travels. Do you have a driver's license needed for the registry? Yes, of course. I replied as I moved to the counter and pulled my wallet from my back pocket. As Layton was transferring the information from my driver's license to the book, I nonchalantly leaned over and threw a glance into the open pages. I noticed that a woman whose first name was Monica, I couldn't make out the last name with the book being upside down, and a guest were checked into room number three as of the day before yesterday. Her license was from New Jersey, and they had yet to check out. We were being assigned to room number two. As we were handed our room key, Layton came out from behind the counter and pointed up the staircase. I only have four rooms for rent. Yours is number two. You're over there on the left once you get upstairs. The bathroom is at the end of the hall. Don't serve meals, I'm sorry to say. Stopped doing that once Mr. Layton passed away. With her final words concluded, we thanked Layton again and proceeded upstairs to room two. The room's accommodations were welcoming, especially after the day we had endured. The double-sized bed took up most of the room's space, yet was comfortably euphoric, even with Stacy crammed between us. I fell asleep within seconds after my head hit the pillow. My sleep, though deep and dreamless, was short-lived as a pleading bladder awakened me. The green light of a digital clock radio near the bed showed 2.13. 
I reluctantly pulled myself from the pleasant confines of the warm covers and quietly made my way out of the room and down the hall to the bathroom. The house was deadly silent save the sound of the thermostat activating the furnace that occupied some alcove somewhere within the house. A thin ornate area carpet ran the length of the narrow and gloomy hallway. As I made my way down the corridor to the bathroom, I paused at the door to room number three. I listened for a second for any faint noises from the room's occupants. There were none, and I silently continued to the bathroom at the hall's end. After relieving myself and briefly observing myself in the mirror, I turned out the room's light and threw a gaze out the closed window near the toilet. The yard behind the house stretched perhaps a good fifty feet before the surrounding forest began. A small wooden enclosure that was built to corral two metal trash cans sat just inside the tree line. It was all illuminated by a single light over the back door. I could feel a slight chill seeping from the inadequately poor seals of the wood-framed window. I was about to turn from the nightly scene when I heard the squeal of a screen door. I turned back to the window. I pressed my face close to the cold glass pane and looked down to the door underneath. Without the bathroom's light, there was no reflection glaring back, and I had a clear view of the yard below. Beneath me, the screen door was open, and it shimmied about as someone was trying to pass through. It was soon revealed to be none other than Ms. Layton as she lumbered into view. She was stooped and struggling as she attempted to drag something with some apparent weight from the house. She wore a thick tweed coat and a light-colored wool hat. Even from where I secretly watched, I could see her cold breath as she labored with the object. As she emerged from the doorway and into the yard, I could see that she was dragging out something large wrapped in a blue plastic tarp. She would take two steps backwards, then with much effort pull the tarp towards her. Two steps, then pull. Two steps, then pull. I could not make out what was enclosed within the tarp, but at first glance one would think that it was a body inside. It certainly appeared that way by the object's length and assumed weight. I didn't know if I should take my initial assumption seriously or laugh it off. It was my curiosity of why an elderly woman would be up at 2 a.m. hauling stuff to the trash that continued to hold my attention to the window. When her repetitive movements finally caused her to arrive alongside the trash enclosure, Leighton dropped the item inside the tarp and stood straight up, stretching her back and gathering her breath. She was now looking into the darkness of the tree line, as if searching for something unseen. What the hell was this crazy old coot up to, I thought, still observing from above. With her breath returned, she turned back to the house and disappeared through the door beneath me, the door quietly closing behind her. I stood there in the bathroom's darkness, scratching at the back of my head, wondering what I had just witnessed. I felt sleep beckoning me back to the warmth that awaited me between the covers and was just about to reject any suspicious assumptions I may have had and just surrender to the enticing call when something caught my eye. 
At first, I thought perhaps the combination of fatigue and the shadows outside were taunting my imagination, but it moved again, and my senses sharpened as I knew that my eyes were not being deceived. Something was moving in the darkness within the trees just out of the light's boundary cast from above the back door. I felt my breath quicken slightly as I waited for the shape to move again, and soon it did. Some animal was nearing the trash bins ever so slowly. Summer had mentioned black bears earlier on our ride here. When the shape appeared, it was in a darting motion that revealed only a faint glimpse of its true form. I pulled my face from the window aghast at the naked human shape that stepped forth, snatching the end of the tarp and yanking it into the darkness in one blinding motion. The shape and the hidden object encased in the tarp disappeared into the blackness of the woods, leaving not a trace of their existence. I conducted my walk back to the room on trembling legs. As I recalled what Lindsay had said just before the accident about seeing someone or something crouched over the roadkill carcass and presumably eating it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The next morning, I donned the same wrinkled and worn clothing from the day before and felt most unpleasant in doing so. I looked forward to retrieving our luggage from the car and standing beneath a hot cascade and shower. Though my sleep had been light and troubled by what I had witnessed in the bathroom, I nevertheless pulled myself from the bed early while Lindsay and Stacy still slept and awaited Summer in one of the rocking chairs on the front porch. They were as comfortable as I imagined they would be. Somer pulled up in front of the house just after nine in a tow truck with Somer's garage and towing painted on the door, and the two of us drove back through town to my disabled car on the outskirts of Balance. How did you all sleep last night? Like the dead, I'd imagine. You all had a long day yesterday, said Somer as we passed through the downtown area. I was reluctant in discussing what I had seen last night and decided to leave it be for now. If anything, I would approach the matter from a not-so-obvious angle. We slept well. Thank you again. I feel like a hobo, though, wearing these same clothes again. This shirt smells. Summer laughed. <laughs> you got some clean clothes in your car? Yeah. Looking forward to a hot shower, too, when I get back. 
we were coming up to the one traffic light in town and slowed to a stop as the light was changing red. I looked out my window as we waited and I saw that Somer's garage was next to us on the corner. One of the mechanics was opening the bay doors. How I noticed this obscure detail before the light changed to green and we moved through the intersection is beyond me, but parked inside one of the two open garage bays sat a yellow older model Camaro. The back end faced the street and in the briefest moment, I glanced the New Jersey license plate screwed to the bumper. I thought back to the register book and the name Monica. If all the damage you got is a cooling hose, then you should be good to go, and you'll be back on the road by the end of the day. Summer's voice pulled me from my present thoughts regarding the car. Great. That would be great, I replied in a toneless voice. I decided now was as good as any to prod. Speaking of being on the road, a funny thing happened to us just before the accident. Oh yeah? What's that? Somer's interest was suddenly piqued. <laughs> Lindsay, my wife, swore that she saw something eating a deer carcass along the side of the road. Well, like I said yesterday, we got black bear and coyotes all up around here. May have an occasional wolf or two, so that's not an unusual sight. That's what I tried to tell her, but she swears up and down it looked like a person. I looked to him for a reaction. He paused for a moment before speaking as if choosing his words carefully. Now my interest was piqued. I don't believe any of it myself, but some town folk would tell you differently. They'd say it was probably a haint, he reluctantly said. A haint? Yeah. Some other folks also call them vultures. Human vultures. I turned in my seat to face them. Human vultures? Some called them that. Again, it's just some superstition the older people up around here believe. You see, there used to be this old fur trapping settlement north of here. A long time ago. I'm talking around the early 1800s. Rumor has it that during an unusually long and grueling winter, the people up there found themselves stranded. And this was long before balance even existed, so... The nearest town was probably at least a good four-day walk. Well, those poor souls up there soon ran out of food and started to die off from starvation and the cold. So desperate times called for desperate measures, and after their prayers to God went unanswered, some say they renounced Jesus and called upon the devil for salvation. That was when they started to eat each other. When everyone would die off, they all gather around and eat the poor bastard. Like vultures. Sounds something like the Donner Party, I remarked. The who? Back in the mid-1800s, some pioneers were traveling to California, and they too became stranded during the winter and resorted to cannibalism. Well, I never heard of that one, but yeah, I guess it is the same story more or less. We were now leaving the outskirts of town. What I don't understand is how people still believe these settlers could still be around over 200 years later. Summer rubbed his stubbled face. Well, I guess them folks started breeding with each other and continued eating on their dead even after the winter had passed. 
They say they never went back to being Christians and continued their wicked ways. They still feed on the dead things in the forest, and now and then people come up missing. Not just here, but all over the area. So I guess if you still believe in all that, you could say that they're still out there and snatching up people for food and probably for breeding too. You don't believe in any of that, right? But I ain't seen none of them Hanks, so I can't say I do. And I've lived here my entire life, but I wouldn't want to be stranded out here at night. Now and then they'll find a stranded car alongside the road or report some people missing around these hills. It would explain a lot if it were true. Summer quickly shifted the conversation to something regarding freshwater fishing, and I threw out simple acknowledgments as my mind lingered on the previous conversation and the unusual observations I had observed while here in balance. I thought of Lindsay's bizarre sighting yesterday and now wished I too had seen it. Once we arrived at the car, I stayed in the cab while Summer hitched up the Accord to the tow truck. I figured it was better to sit here and wait instead of standing outside watching him with my hands in my pockets. He completed the whole process in about 10 minutes and we were soon heading back into town. Though my stay here had been short, I was eager to get this all over with and back on the road, putting this isolated town far behind me. Something that I couldn't quite pinpoint was odd or somehow out of sorts about this place. An underlying mystery whose clues were no longer masked but slowly becoming known. It wasn't until we pulled up in front of the garage and saw a balanced patrol car awaiting our return that I felt a twinge of dread running up my back. As we pulled up alongside the garage, I could see an officer climbing out of the vehicle. There was no tangible reason for me to know that the officer was awaiting my arrival, but the feeling was so strong and distressing that it took me a moment to open my door and let myself out of the truck. I braced myself for the bad news. Morning, Troy. The officer who I saw happened to be the police chief of balance, greeted as he removed his hat and drew closer. Morning, Roman, Summer replied. Are you cow manning? The police chief directed his attention immediately to me. I could see that the nameplate on his uniform read Casp. Casp was probably in his early fifties. He was a tall, thick-shouldered man with a crew cut, reminded me of a drill sergeant. Uh, yes, that's me. Is there a problem? There was an accident at Mrs. Layton's place involving your wife and daughter. Accident? What accident? I could already feel the blood rushing from my brain as I prepared for the worst. My mouth suddenly became dry. Apparently, your wife tripped while coming down the stairs at Layton's, and in the process, she took your daughter down with her. Your wife is still unconscious. We have her at the clinic. <sighs> and, and, and my daughter? I felt my heart quickening, my breaths coming in rapid gasps. She didn't make it. They pronounced her dead at the scene. She broke a neck in the fall. I'm sorry. 
My mouth opened to speak, but no words escaped my lips. I felt a feeling of vertigo overcome me as my legs gave out. Summer caught me before I could fall. Caspers lead me to the patrol car. I almost wanted to laugh at this ridiculous accusation that was being presented to me. I had just seen them an hour ago asleep in bed. How was this possible? While I was being helped to Casp's car, I drunkenly looked over my shoulder to the garage. The yellow Camaro was still there and was now partially draped under a worn gray cloth tarp. The rear bumper was still very much visible, as was the now missing jersey license plate that had been recently removed. The time they drove me from Somers' garage to the clinic was like some obscured dream. A shrouded illusion of an unrealistic world that I was simply passing through. A surreal place where time held no meaning. This wasn't reality. I would soon awake and all this around me would dissipate, revealing the real world where Lindsay and Stacy were awaiting me. Mr. Manning? The man spoke to me. I slowly lifted my head and tried focusing on who was addressing me. He was younger than Caspin Somer, maybe in his late thirties. He was short and overweight in his white lab coat. His hair was thinning prematurely, and a pair of thin wire-framed glasses rested on his button nose. Mr. Manning, I'm Dr. Ebinger. Your wife is in critical but stable condition right now. And I'd like to... His words rapidly faded as I turned my gaze away from him and looked around me. I couldn't recall the ride from the garage and now I was becoming aware that I was at the medical clinic, standing in a brightly lit hall next to Casp, with its waxed tile floor and widened beige walls. I could smell the disinfectant. Mr. Manning? Mr. Manning, would you like to see your wife? The doctor asked. I nodded. I was being escorted by both Casp and Ebinger as they walked me into a room. There was an empty bed near the door, and in the far one by the window laid Lindsay, an IV inserted in her arm, a brace around her neck and clear tubes in her nose. Like some mindless zombie, I lumbered to the bed and pulled up a chair to her side. Putting her limp hand in mine, I laid my head on the pink cotton blanket that covered her and fell instantly into a deep and restful sleep. A gentle shake of my shoulder awakened me. It was Dr. Ebinger. I looked around about the room still half asleep. By the light outside the window, I guessed it was late afternoon already. Mr. Manning, there's nothing you can do here now. You need to get some rest. I've arranged for Chief Casp to give you a ride back to Ms. Layton's place. I've also prescribed some doxapine for you. It'll help you sleep. Tomorrow we'll make some arrangements to take your wife to one of the hospitals nearby that are more properly equipped to accommodate her. I felt his hand carefully lifting me from the chair. My daughter... I asked wearily as I stood. Yes, we will make arrangements to transport her as well. If you wish, you can view her tomorrow when you're rested. Once I was on my feet and started to walk from the room, 
I had to admit that I was temporarily pulled from that haze that I was previously in. I felt more aware of my surroundings, could feel my strength returning. Casper waited me out in the hall and clasped a hand on my shoulder and offered his condolence. Dr. Ebinger handed me a plastic vial of the pills he prescribed and offered his own condolences before Casper and I departed the clinic. Casper led the way and before we walked through the double glass doors to the parking lot, I turned and looked behind me. Standing at the far end of the hall outside of Lindsay's room, Dr. Ebinger was speaking with Somer. Ebinger's hand rested on his shoulder as he was apparently explaining something to him. Why was he here? Somer's unexplained appearance was now something else that added to the oddities that were mounting in balance. I unfortunately was not in the frame of mind to decipher any of this and thought only of the bed awaiting me in room number two. If there's anything you need, Mr. Manning, you let Miss Layton know and she'll give me a ring, okay? I sat next to Casp in the patrol car. A shotgun secured in its rack rested between us. Even though I was beginning to finally accept the devastating loss that had befallen me, a part of my brain still refused to accept the reality of what had happened, keeping me in a semi-dazed state. I nodded at Cath's offer, and before I realized my actions, I was talking. Do you believe in the vultures? I asked, staring straight ahead. Excuse me? Vultures. Human vultures. Cass chuckled at my words. <laughs> Troy been talking that nonsense to you, has he? They're just a fairy tale, Mr. Manning. An old wives' tale used to keep kids from getting lost out of the woods. His words lacked any conviction as I knew they would. I saw one. Last night outside of Layton's house. I saw it, I blurted out. What did I have to lose at this point? I could always talk it up to my confused state. We were turning off the main road now, taking the side streets to Layton's. Casp forced another laugh. You probably saw a bear hanging out by her trash cans, that's all. This is upstate New York, Mr. Manning. Not a big city like Pittsburgh. He turned and smiled at me. I never said I saw it by the trash cans. I quietly remarked as I turned to meet his gaze. It was just an assumption, sir. Casp's tone lost its previous pleasantness. We were now pulling up in front of Ms. Layton's. Before departing the vehicle, I glanced at the car's dashboard clock. It was just before 4 p.m., as I entered the house, Cast once more paid his condolences without entering beyond the porch and turned back to his patrol car. Like Somer with the Camaro in his garage, there was something suspicious about Casp as well. These people were dancing around a bigger taboo issue that I was being deprived knowledge of. That was okay, though because the sooner I was out of this jerkwater town and crossing back into Pennsylvania, the better. I had bigger fish to fry and a weight on my shoulders that would probably grind me into the earth. Whatever they were hiding would soon be in my rearview mirror. I turned from the doorway and closed the door behind me. 
The front room was empty. I stood alone listening to the silence of the house. The shock of Lindsay and Stacy was swelling inside me again. I could feel myself being overwhelmed. Tears were forming in my eyes, and I wished I had a pint of Jack Daniels right now to balance all this out. I pulled the plastic vial of pills Ebinger had prescribed and looked at the small vial in my hand. I wonder if consuming this entire bottle at once would kill me. The experiment was becoming more and more plausible under my current circumstances. Let's see how I feel once I get upstairs. I was turning to the stairs when I noticed the leather-bound register book sitting on the desk counter. I had to know. Spinning the book to face me, I opened it and flipped through the pages until I came across the last names registered. There were only two names at the very end, mine and a Monica Stribling from New Jersey. I ran my finger across the page to the checkout dates. It marked her and her guest as checking out today. I looked up to the top of the staircase. Not very likely if they didn't have their car. I crammed the pills back into my pocket and quickly made my way up the stairs. I paused at the door marked number three and debated if I should knock. Instead, I opened the door unannounced and pushed it inward. The room was very similar to the one I occupied. The furniture arranged only slightly different. I slowly nodded my head in recognition of what I had already suspected. The room was ransacked. The covers partially pulled from the mattress and dresser drawers opened with a variety of clothes tossed from them and strewn about the room. I made out two open suitcases on the floor near a window. A makeup bag had its contents dumped out on the white-fitted mattress sheet of the bed. I picked out a bra and a few single women's shoes amongst the clutter. What the fuck is going on in this town? I muttered before turning from the room and heading back downstairs. Like the jersey license plate on that yellow Camaro, I was somehow able to pinpoint another obscure detail that would have normally otherwise gone totally unnoticed. Something momentarily gleamed at the base of one of the balusters of the stairs' handrail. I was only a few steps from the top of the stairs when it caught my attention. I squatted on the steps and picked at it with my fingers. It was the remaining piece of a heavy-gauged fishing line that had been tied to the baluster. The knotted end and a few inches of string remained intact. I now recalled Cass's voice when we met at the garage. Apparently, your wife tripped while coming down the stairs at Layton's, and in the process, she took your daughter down with her. I let the piece of line slip from my fingers as my hands trembled. Images of Somer discussing fishing on the ride to the car, and his unexpected presence at the clinic while being instructed by that Dr. Ebinger on some unknown topic. I stood up on unsteady legs as all my sorrow was being suppressed by a growing anger that was being ignited within my mind. The old woman was about to be questioned in a most forceful manner. I marched down the remaining stairs with the appended purpose of malice. Miss Layton? I called out as I walked through the front room into the back of the house. 
Her car had been in the driveway when Casp and I arrived, so she was home. I rounded the corner into the kitchen and almost into my demise. The blunt end of a claw hammer came down prematurely and glanced off my brow instead of connecting with my temple. A flash of white from being struck flashed across my eyes. My arms automatically went up in a protective posture and saved my face from the second blow. The arm that was struck winced back in pain, and again my body reacted on its own accord by throwing a closed fist from my other arm into Leighton's face. I felt her nose collapse under my knuckles before she fell to the floor. I regained my balance and touched the area above my eye where the hammer connected. I could already feel a knot forming, and blood dripped into my right eye. I saw the hammer near my foot where she dropped it and bent down and grabbed it. Looking at Leighton now, I watched as she squirmed about on the floor. Her glasses broken as well as her nose. Blood was pouring freely over her mouth and into her flowered blouse. You motherfucker, I said, wiping the blood from my fingers and onto my pant leg. I had her exactly where I wanted her and that attempt on my life just made this a no-holds-barred interrogation. I stepped over the top of her and sat down on her midsection, easily pinning her frail body to the floor. The hammer still clutched in my hand. <sighs> Alright you old bitch, start talking. Even with me having an undisputed upper hand on her, Leighton tried to squirm out from beneath me, her hands clawing at my face. She had spunk, I'll give her that. Slapping her hands away, I threw my free hand onto her throat and pressed. She instantly disregarded scratching at my face and attempted to remove my grip from her neck. I squeezed harder. Where are the two girls from Jersey, huh? You killed them like you killed my kid, huh? I loosened my fingers slightly, giving her a chance to speak. They left this morning. She croaked out. The fuck they did. You killed them, right? Like you tried to do to my wife, right? Troy Somer help you? They're already in dead. All of them. They were as good as gone when they came into town. What are you talking about? Start making sense, or you're next on the dead list. I raised the hammer above her face. She had to be shitting bricks at this point. <laughs> you're dead too. <laughs> she cackled. Damn, she had balls. You're all dead. Food for the hands. And you know what? What? She'd better say something useful. <laughs> no one will ever find your bone-gnawed bodies. Ever. <laughs> Her eyes went wide and maniacal as she started laughing. Specks of blood spat from her lips and her heckled laughter. I lost it right then and there. 
bringing that hammer down on her face in a succession of powerful strikes. All that pent-up emotion that had been building in me was now being brutally released on this old woman's face. Like steam escaping from a boiling kettle of water. I started crying as the reality of my wife and daughter senselessly losing their lives to this crazy old hag sank home. I smashed the hammer down again and again as I envisioned myself hammering in long, thick nails into a board. Her laugh stopped after the initial blow. Her skull split down the middle on the third hit, but I kept going like some crazed machine. It wasn't until I was breathless and sweating that I ceased pounding the hammer. What was once her head now resembled more of a crushed pumpkin that had been dropped from a towering height. I could make out an eye and a partial jawbone in the massive jelly gore and bone fragments. A set of dentures had flown from her mouth during the assault and landed near the refrigerator. Her limbs still twitched under me even after death, and I stood back up feeling like a new man. A man reborn. A man self-appointed with the divine task of retribution. Barbaric, unrelenting retribution. Like a man on an overriding mission, I stepped out the front door and across the front lawn with tenacious purpose. The bloodied hammer still in my hand. It was time to pay Troy Sommer a visit at the garage and see what he had to say. Though the sun was making its initial descent, I must have been the most dreadfully menacing and insane spectacle in the remaining sunlight as I marched from the side roads and onto the main street. The front of my collared shirt and face splashed with the bloodied remnants of Ms. Layton and an equally bloodstained claw hammer clenched in my fist. I walked like some automated, unemotional robot with tunnel vision. Occasionally, I would see people in the distance race past me in horror, clearing a path on the sidewalk as I continued marching onward. My mind was bent on a single violent task, taking out everyone who I felt was involved in the death of my family. I would get answers, or I would take lives. Maybe both. What did I have to lose at this point? I had already murdered Leighton and lost my wife and daughter. What did I have to lose now besides my already broken and despaired mind that was already now hopelessly beyond repair? The answer? Nothing. Ahead of me, the traffic light in front of Somers' garage came into view. I smiled. Almost there. I just hoped he was working when I strolled in covered in blood. I was making good time in my walk. I felt more alive than I had in ages. I felt exhilarated, almost invincible. As morbid as it may sound, I couldn't wait to confront Summer and dish out a little hammer time. I cracked a smile at my pun. Yes, it's hammer time. The garage was the next building coming up, and to my jubilation, I spotted Somer walking from one of the bay doors, wiping his hands on a greasy rag and gazing up at the sky, totally unaware of my approach. I clenched the hammer tighter. I debated if I should shout out his name as I neared or just walk up on him. Fuck him. 
He didn't deserve to be tipped off on what was about to transpire. Without warning, a balanced patrol car jumped the curve and cut up onto the sidewalk, putting the vehicle between Summer and myself. I was so concentrated on the man, I didn't even hear it race up from behind me. The blind rage had momentarily diverted my attention from my immediate surroundings. A young officer had quickly emerged from the driver's seat and partially hid himself behind the car door as he withdrew his sidearm and aimed it on me. Casp was climbing out of the passenger seat at a more leisurely pace and slid a black baton from his duty belt. Stop right there, Mr. Manning, he stated more calmly than I expected. Behind him, at the garage, Somer caught sight of me and was running back inside the garage like some scared rabbit. So much for hammer time. I did as Casp ordered. My mind raced, searching for an alternative plan, but I was drawing a blank. I had no backup plan to my maddening rampage. I was living for the moment, planning as I went. I should have realized someone was bound to call the police at some point with me parading down Main Street like some murderous lunatic. Put the hammer down, Casp ordered as he inched closer, staying to my left side in order to give the younger cop a clear shot if need be. What's going on in this town? I said. I want answers. Casp was shaking his head. I have no idea what you're talking about, Mr. Manning. Just set that hammer on the ground. No need for anyone to get hurt. I laughed. <laughs> it's a little too late for that, I'd say, wouldn't you? As Cass tried to flank me, I too moved, keeping him in front of me. My back was being exposed to the patrol car. Why were they killed? Why? I asked. Casp was inching closer and continued trying to move to my side. I have no idea what you're talking about. Now please lay the hammer on the ground. The fuck I will. Suddenly my back was on fire. I heard a crackling sound from behind me and realized I was being electrocuted. The young cop wasn't holding a pistol but a taser. My back arched when the barb struck me and my muscles violently contracted. The hammer fell from my hand. I felt myself urinating. Though I saw him advancing, there was nothing I could do as Cass brought the baton across the side of my head, causing everything to go black. The first thing that I noticed as I emerged from the blackness was their voices. Luckily, I had the sense not to move and show them I had awakened. Instead, I let my senses slowly revive while remaining perfectly still and without their knowledge. I could hear Casp talking, could feel the chill of the night air around me and the grass against my face and hands. I was laying outside somewhere. Albert, do me a favor, Casp was asking someone. Yeah, chief, replied the voice of a younger man, probably the cop who tasered me. It sounded like he was standing right next to me. Who's that big girl who works the counter at the pharmacy? You mean Helen? Yeah, her. Go over there and bring her fat ass over here. Tell her she's taking over Miss Layton's place now. 
She can start by cleaning up that mess in the kitchen. And if she gives you any shit, put a shoe in her ass and tell her I sent you, okay? Yes, sir. I could feel his footfalls on the earth as he walked away. I wondered who else was here, and against my better judgment, I slowly opened my eyes. We were in Layton's backyard near the trash cans. I was on my side facing the tree line. Cass must have been behind me, for I couldn't see him. But I did see Somer. He was standing just in my view off to the side. He looked nervous. Behind me, I heard the screen door open as someone else was making their entrance. Is it time? It was Dr. Ebinger. Almost, replied Casp. You bring them? They're in the back of the ambulance. Troy, lug them women out and bring them back here. Lay them next to Ms. Layton, ordered Casp. Why me? The doc should have brought them when he got here. The dock isn't built for any hard work. No offense, Doc. None taken, Ebinger quickly answered back. Plus, if Albert and I didn't show up when we did, you'd be lying over there next to Miss Layton and in the same condition, so shut your fucking mouth and do as I ask. Please. Somer bowed his head in shame and disappeared from my sight. Ebinger must have brought Lindsay and Stacy with them. I wondered if Lindsay was still alive. I tried to quell my mountain emotions. They must be getting ready to bury the lot of us. Well, they would be in for a rude awakening when they tried to move me. I wish I had that hammer right now. I shut my eyes again and thought on how I could get my hands on Cass's sidearm. No matter how I looked at it, it was going to be a next-to-impossible task. The only thing I could hope for would be a small window of opportunity to present itself and lunge at it. Anyone else coming? asked Abinger. No, not tonight. It's just going to be the three of us. Elijah and his crew are going to get a little something extra this time round. Think they'll skip the next time? Who knows? One can only hope. We lucked out with all these bodies this time around. They're getting six in one week. What the fuck was going on here? Elijah? Who the fuck was that? I couldn't contain my secret any longer and decided to let them in on my awakened state. I rolled over and sat up. <clears throat> when you say we lucked out, does that include me? I startled the hell out of Dr. Ebinger, and he damn near jumped in the air. Cast whirled to face me and put his hand on his holstered weapon. I was wondering when you would come to. Sleep good? It wasn't until I sat up that my head spun and was splitting with pain from the baton blow and every muscle in my back ached from the taser. Trying to get the upper hand was most definitely going to be a problem. I wasn't sure of the exact time, but the sun was no longer in the sky, and it was getting dark. Shoot him, Roman, said Ebinger, as he moved closer to Casp. That's your answer to everything, Doc. A dead man can't help us carry the bodies, now can he? Between the blow to the head and the tasing, my body was in a sad state of affairs. 
As I tried to gain my composure and steady myself, I noticed a wet spot on my jeans and recalled pissing myself. I may have to buy some time if I hope to feel up to the task of getting out of this mess in one piece. Who's Elijah? I asked, trying to rub the soreness from my neck. He your boss? My boss? (laughs) Casp laughed. Hell no. Only man I used to answer to was the mayor, and he ain't with us anymore. At this time, Somer came from around the house. Over his shoulder, he carried a filled black plastic body bag. His one arm balanced, who I could only assume was Lindsay on his shoulder, and in his other, he dragged a similar yet smaller bag. That, too, was filled. I gritted my teeth and looked away. I knew that they would never let Lindsay live. Lay him over there by Ms. Layton for now, Casp directed. I heard the bodies being dropped onto the ground and I fought back impending tears and uncontrollable rage. As per your question, Mr. Manning, no, Elijah is not my boss. He's somebody's boss, but not mine. Uh, He and I, I mean, he and this town have a mutual agreement. We feed them, and they leave us be. His bizarre statement pushed the thoughts of my deceased loved ones from my mind temporarily as I turned to face him. Feed who? I thought you said he knew, Ebinger cut in. Casp held out his hand to silence the doctor. He knows, more or less. Old Tubby over here felt obliged to tell him just about everything. Ain't that right, Troy? Casp threw a stern glance at Somer, who again bowed his head. It's okay, Troy. What's done is done. Plus, it doesn't matter none anyhow. Mr. Manning here isn't going anywhere. Except in someone's belly, maybe, Casp chuckled. Like Troy told you, there was a settlement north of here that got snowed in one winter a long, long time ago. And those desperate folks unfortunately turned to the devil and the consumption of flesh to live. Some god-awful things went on up there. Well, those people are still out there. Those human vultures, as you called them. They thrived on the carcasses of each other and any dead animals they came across out there. Eventually, other settlements popped up in the area as people expanded. As far as they were concerned, we were all trespassing on their feeding grounds. So Elijah, their leader, made packs with the towns in the area. Each town donates three dead bodies every four months and they in turn leave us be. And if not? Well, then they take it upon themselves to take a few bodies. That is why we are currently without a mayor. He thought he'd put his foot down and stop the offerings. It's not as easy as you'd think coming up with dead bodies every four months. Well, Mayor... uh, What the hell was his name again, Doc? Turpic, Ebinger stated. Yes, that's right, Mike Turpic. 
Well, after he made up his mind not to feed them anymore, a bunch of them crept into town late one night and took what they were owed. Mayor Turpic was one of them. Ever since then, we have been back to the old ways of doing things with them. Easier that way. It's almost time, Roman. Mebinger interrupted as he looked at his wristwatch. Casp checked his own watch and sighed. Yeah, I guess it is. He then unholstered his sidearm and waved it at me. Get up, Manon. Rest time is over. Troy, you grab Ms. Layton. Doc, grab the kid. And Manning can take his wife. I looked over at the bodies laid out next to the house. Unlike my family, they had draped a white sheet over Layton. Her stocking legs stuck out from underneath. She was missing a shoe. Where the remains of her head were hidden, it stained the sheet red. I let out a groan as I stood. I felt as though I had fallen out of a moving car. As I painfully regained my senses and found my balance, Summer reluctantly moved to Layton's body and scooped her up. His face showed a look of disgust as he lifted her from the ground. Casp noticed and laughed. <laughs> Come on now, Troy. You act as if you ain't never lugged a body before. I never knew any of them people. This is Miss Layton. He replied as he walked off with her limp body dangling from his arms. Come on, Doc. Everyone pulls their weight, Casp said as he nudged Ebinger, who now began walking over and gently lifting Stacy's bag in his arms. Casp now looked at me and waved the gun, showing that it was my turn. I shook my head, realizing I was about to carry my dead wife's body to some dreadful fate that only I would be alive to mutually face. My head was throbbing like some brutal hangover, and my muscles were still aching as I slid my hands under her body and carefully lifted her up. With his weapon still pointed in my direction, Casp said, All right now, let's get this shit show started. Troy, you go first. Doc, you after him, and Manning and I will bring up the rear. I now noticed that a path, starting where the trash cans were situated, led deep into the woods behind the house. Somer was already making his way down the trail with Ebinger close behind. Jutting his chin, Casp directed me to follow next with him at the end of this death march. So now what? I guess I'll have to dig my own grave too, once we get to where we're headed. Casp chuckled behind me. <laughs> no. You'll be pleased to know that has already been taken care of a while ago. No, once we get to the feeding hole, you won't have to do anything else, I promise. We walked in silence. Up ahead, I could hear Summer huffing and puffing as he strained with Layton's body. The path twisted and turned deeper into the thickening woods. I caught glimpses of the setting sun through the trees as it paid the day farewell, leaving behind the remnants of an orangey sky. It would soon only be a matter of time before it engulfed us in pitch black. As we walked, I tried to concentrate my thoughts on how to get that gun away from Casp rather than reflect on me carrying my deceased wife and what lay ahead at this feeding hole. A thought then occurred to me, Exactly who were the real vultures in this nightmare? 
the cannibalistic beings that apparently roamed these miles and miles of the forest, or the people in these isolated towns who loosely fed off their fellow human beings as sacrifices to save their own skins. It seemed we had trudged along for close to 20 minutes when a clearing opened at the trail's end. The excavated area was about 30 feet around. In the clearing's center, a large pit had been dug. The gagging stench of rot was potent from afar, enough to tell me what was inside. Somer walked to the hole's edge and disposed of Layton's body as he dropped her from his arms and into the pit. I lowered Lindsay's body gently onto the ground and saw that Ebinger had already done the same with his bag. The muscles in my arms burned from their exertion of carrying Lindsay, and I rubbed my biceps as I slowly inched to the pit's edge. I almost retched at the sight below me. The pit was filled with dozens of bodies. Some were practically skeletons while others were in various forms of decay. All had been mutilated and torn to shreds by hungry hands and mouths. Laying on the top of this decomposed heap of humans were the latest additions. Both were obviously women as their bare breasts were exposed, their clothes torn apart and their flesh partially eaten. One was missing a head. The other's face was beyond recognition, with its soft tissue pulled from the skull by human teeth. Alone, I remained in one of the sockets and stared blankly at me. The final resting place from Monica Striblin from New Jersey and her nameless friend. Ms. Layton was right when she said they would never find the gnawed bodies. I felt bile building deep in my throat and backed away from the hole and covered my mouth. I heard Casp laugh behind me. <laughs> you get used to it, trust me, he mocked. It's time, said Ebinger. I know what time it is, retorted Casp. Troy, start the fire. I looked to where Somer was moving to and saw that a small bundle of sticks had been stacked near the pit's far edge to form the foundation to a miniature signal fire. The surrounding ground was blackened with ash as the lighting of a fire was presumably commonplace. I looked from the woodpile to Casp, who was now looking out to the trees beyond the clearing and saw that his arm which held the gun was lowered to his side. He wasn't used to having outsiders alive here amongst them and was letting his guard down. I gradually inched closer to him. I stopped when he pulled a small silver object from the breast pocket of his uniform shirt and put it to his lips and blew into it. I heard nothing. It wasn't until I moved to another angle that I saw he was blowing a dog whistle. A dog whistle? Casp whirled and lifted the gun within inches of my face. Take a step back, partner. Almost forgot you were here. Putting my hands up in a passive manner, I stepped back. My window of opportunity was gone. They hear this whistle like I was ringing a dinner bell, he stated. Behind Casp, the fire came alive and illuminated our darkened surroundings. 
I looked up from the flames and saw that the sky was now a dark blue and speckles of stars were appearing in the night sky. The surrounding woods were becoming blacker by the minute. I decided to try and buy myself some time. Maybe with some luck, another opportunity would somehow, by the grace of God, present itself if I played my cards right. This Elijah, I said. You and he are tight? Excuse me? The gun still pointed at my face. I meant you obviously renegotiated this arrangement with him after the mayor was gone, right? So I figured you and he... You figured what? That we were drinking buddies? Elijah is one of the last original settlers, so he understands. Whatever went on between them and the devil during that winter is not known. But what did happen is that it gave these people an extended life. They live way beyond the years that we do. Elijah understands, not like the others, the newer ones. They've forgotten normal speech a long time ago. Roman, why is he still alive? Kill him already, Ebinger said from across the pit. Upon Ebinger's request, Casp eyed me hard and stepped forward until the barrel of the gun touched my forehead. Roman, Somer said in a hushed tone. They're here. Casp and I burned holes into each other's faces like some childish staring contest waiting to see who would avert their gaze first. What seemed like an eternity was only a matter of a few seconds before he lowered the gun and turned away from me. I exhaled heavily as I was sure that I would be lying next to Lindsay at any moment. I swallowed hard and turned my gaze to the tree line. It took a moment for my vision to readjust to the fire's glare, and then they eventually came into view. Standing shrouded in the darkness near the edge of the clearance. Just out of the fire's illumination stood numerous dark silhouetted figures. They stood silently watching us, and as I turned in a circle I saw that they had the entire clearance surrounded. I easily counted a good dozen of them at least. Some were more visible than others who stood further back in the darkness but they were easily noticeable by their eyes. I wasn't certain if it was the light from the flames that caused it, but their eyes shone like tiny stars, small specks of white light against the hidden black faces. Elijah! Casp called out to them. I saw that he was holstering his weapon. Either he had again quickly forgotten my presence, or did it as a non-aggressive gesture to appease them, perhaps both. I have four more tonight. That's a total of six. We're paid in full, plus extra, you hear? A lone figure was stepping forward from the darkness that concealed it. It slowly moved closer and stopped just close enough for it to be faintly seen in the flame's flickering light. It was Elijah. He was tall and gaunt, yet muscular. He stood shirtless. His torso was covered in a variety of bizarre markings of symbols and letterings. His long hair and beard appeared more gray than black and hung over his shoulders and chest. Despite coming closer, 
His eyes still shined like stars in his haggard, menacing face. Without taking his eyes off Elijah, Cass spoke over his shoulder to the others. Toss those other bodies in the hole. From the corner of my eye, I saw Somer and Ebinger reaching for the body bags. Casp turned his attention back to his visitor. My eyes locked on the pistol sitting loosely in the holster. His back was to me. My blessed window of opportunity had miraculously returned and was wide fucking open. I rushed at him. I heard Ebinger shout a warning, but he was a second too late. In one forceful thrust, I threw my forearm into Cass's upper back. While my other hand reached in and snatched the gun from its holster before he fell forward. The movement was perfect. As Cass fell in the dirt, I quickly lifted the gun up and panned it back and forth across the area of the clearing, making sure they all saw who now had possession of the pistol. Somer turned and attempted to make a run for it. Where he planned on going, I'll never know because I quickly squeezed off two shots into his back. And he fell face first into the ground just outside of the clearing. The sound of the gun was louder than I expected and echoed thunderously in the night air. I backed up a few paces and swung the gun toward Ebinger, who instantly threw his hands up in the air to surrender. His face a mask of shock. I then pointed it at Casp, who was standing up. He too held his hands up. Manning, that gun isn't going to help you. You'd best just give it to me, and we can all walk away from this alive, he said. The way I see it, I'm walking out of here, regardless. I'm the one with the gun now. A noise caused the three of us to look over to where Summer had been shot. A pair of those ghastly-looking haints, their lanky, naked bodies covered in markings and long, tangled hair, had readily crept out from their concealed positions and were dragging Somer out of the clearing by his shirt. None of us intervened as they pulled him out of the firelight and into the dark. We stood silently and listened to the sound of his clothing being torn, followed by the sickening sound of his flesh being rent from his lifeless body. Man, be reasonable, Ebinger pleaded. He looked as though he were on the verge of crying. We need to leave here now. Give Roman the gun. I answered him with a shot to his abdomen. I was getting that euphoric feeling of power again, like when I was walking down Main Street with the hammer. It felt good. He buckled over and stumbled headlong over the edge of the hole, falling into the mass of rotten human carcasses. Once he realized where he was, he panicked and cried out. I couldn't imagine if it was the bullet wound or the fact that he was crawling around in that slimy, decayed mess of blood and guts that made him start to wail. Something quickly moved at the corner of my eye, and I instinctively turned and fired the gun again. Casp had attempted to spring the same move on me as I had done to him, except the gun was in my hands now. With hardly any experience with firearms, I jerked the trigger when I fired. The gun barrel dipped, causing the round to strike Casp in the thigh. He fell in front of me, his hand brushing against my shirt as he went down. 
I needed to pay attention. I backed away and put some space between us. I then threw a glance up at Elijah. He stood motionless watching the scene play out through his shiny little eyes. Something else moved to my side and I whirled around, the gun lifted high. The silhouetted shapes were drawing closer to the clearing's edge now, tightening the circle. I saw Stacy's body bag being pulled out of the light by clawed hands and shouted in protest. Figures were emerging next to me and reaching for Lindsay's bag now. I screamed at them too and fired off two more rounds. I wounded one who disappeared into the darkness as quickly as it had appeared. The other dropped dead and was slumped over the body bag. The bullets had pierced its torso. There's too many, Manning. Give me that goddamn gun! Casp hollered as he outstretched his hand toward me. Everything was happening so quickly that I could hardly focus my attention on any one action. Three of the figures had scampered into the clearing and down into the pit where they attacked Avenger. These vultures carried long knives and were cutting and stabbing at him. He screamed hysterically as they butchered him with their blades and then proceeded to eat him alive. I stepped away from the pit. I felt my previous feeling of exhilaration quickly drain from me as fast as it had returned and was being replaced by fear. Squaring off with another man was one matter, but being subjected to this horror was beyond comprehension. My mind could not grasp the reality of what was transpiring around me. I saw Casp standing back up on his wounded leg. He was shouting at me, but I heard no words. My brain was shutting down. It was being overloaded and was on the brink of mentally cracking. I saw his eyes widen as he shouted and pointed to me. It was then I felt an excruciating pain in my lower back. I spun and saw one foul-looking Hank grinning at me with blackened teeth. A female with her naked marked body and sagging breasts was holding a narrow-bladed five-inch knife in her hand. The rusty blade was covered in blood. When I realized I had just been stabbed, I put a bullet in her face. The head erupted like an exploding melon. A mixture of blood, brains, and bone fragments splashed across my face. Before I could recover, Casp was on me from behind and taking me to the ground. He had found his window of opportunity. We grappled in the dirt like two wounded dogs in a pit fight. For a moment I had forgotten where we were and only knew that I had to prevent him from retrieving the gun. But the older man, however, was solid and my strength was no match. The way I felt, the gun was easily yanked from my grasp and a fist thrown to the side of my head for good measure. As he rose off me, something fell from his shirt and landed on my chest. It was the dog whistle. I snatched it up in my hand. I kept it in my clutches, denying Casp the instrument to their summoning, and crawled to my feet and scrambled to where the path met the clearing. As Casp stated, there were too many of them. They were easily overrunning the clearing and taking anyone who fell in our violent squabbles only to be feasted upon. If I could slide into the darkness, I just might be able to sneak off undetected. I looked back and saw that Casp was standing up yelling at Elijah, 
who remained motionless through the entire ordeal. Called him off, he shouted as he waved the gun around. We paid what he owed! We paid! Elijah now stepped forward and approached the police chief. Casp held up his hands passively and holstered the gun again. He was making a last-ditch attempt to mend fences and bring about a peaceful resolution to an unexpected chaos. I quietly crept backwards and into the shadows. Elijah was now standing toe-to-toe with Casp. I paused my apparently unnoticed departure and watched. I was well enough out of the light that I could not be seen, but needed to stay and witness the surmounting outcome. I had come too far, endured too much to simply walk away without any final closure of all this. Elijah, Casp said in a calm and relaxed tone, Take the offerings. Take them all. I could see from where I hid that he was putting forth his best efforts under the current circumstances to smooth everything over and get a free pass to walk. I can make this right, Elijah. I can. I'll bring your people three more bodies by next month. I can fix this. I'll... In a movement faster than sight could follow, Elijah stuck the knife he had concealingly held into Casp. The long blade was thrust deep into his abdomen just below the sternum and pushed at an upward angle. Casp gasped by the sudden action. His eyes widened in shock. Before he knew the full extent of what had happened, Elijah gripped the sides of his head and bit down onto his face, ripping his nose off. Casp screamed. The piece of cartilage was swiftly chewed and swallowed before the knife was yanked free of Casp's torso and jammed down into the base of his neck. Blood spurted upward, spraying them both in a rain of crimson. With the fatal damage inflicted, Elijah shoved Casp to the ground. As if he knew where I was hidden, Casp turned and looked in my direction as he squirmed in the dirt. His face, without a nose, resembled more of a bat with two black holes for nasal passage. The others were now crawling into the clearing and descending onto Casp as he laid there, realizing just how expendable he really was. I could hear him screaming over the sound of tearing cloth and the consumption of his warm flesh as I turned from the massacre and stealthily made my way into the dark. During the growing night, the moon had emerged, exposing itself only partially, but that was all I required to make out the direction of the trail. As I carefully made my way along the obscured path, I experienced a severe pain in my lower back that seemed to be worsening, and only now recalled having been stabbed. I only hoped that the blade didn't penetrate my kidney and pushed myself through the pain. I found myself having difficulty walking upright. Each step was agonizing by the time the lights from Leighton's house became visible in the distance. When I emerged from the trail and back into the backyard, I leaned up on the wood enclosure for the trash cans. I gently touched where I had been wounded and my fingers came back wet and sticky from the blood. 
If my kidney was indeed lacerated, I need to get medical attention as soon as possible. I heard a sink faucet being turned on and looked up to the house. The kitchen light was on, and I could see a plump woman with short blonde hair was working at the kitchen sink. The window was open. It must be that woman Helen Casp had called for. No sooner had Leighton been disposed of than a replacement was already taking her place at the inn. I moved silently from the trash cans and made my way to the front of the house. Leighton's station wagon was still in the drive, and now a small compact car was parked behind it. I pushed myself toward the car and tried the door handle. The door was unlocked, and to my amazement, when the interior light came on, it revealed a set of keys still dangling from the ignition. It was almost too good to be true. I painfully climbed in and started the car. I was driving down Main Street before Helen even realized I had taken her car. Unknowingly, I blew through the red light at Somer's garage. Luckily, traffic in this hick town was minimal at best. I was growing incredibly tired. I guessed that between the loss of blood from the stab wound and the mental fatigue I had been through in the last 24 hours, it was only a matter of time before my body called it quits demanding the rest it desperately needed. I was now leaving the outskirts of town and headed back to the main road. Once there, I would just follow it until... Again, my hearing was the first to awaken. Hey, buddy, can you hear me? The voice asked. It took every ounce of willpower to open my eyes and deny my body from slipping back into that deep unconsciousness. Hey, Debbie, he's alive! A young man in his twenties was crouched over me, calling over his shoulder. Damn, we thought you was dead. <sighs> I could only manage one word. Dude, you flew through that stop sign and went right across the road into a tree. You almost took us out with you. I looked past the man's head and up to the sky. It was still night, and I was outside of the car lying on the grass. I must have passed out before the exit. I again called upon what little strength remained in me to slowly sit up. The man helped ease me into a sitting position. In front of me, the car I had taken was wrapped around a large tree in a gently sloping ditch off the road. Though not a total train wreck, the car was beyond drivable. Steam was hissing up from the crushed radiator. Debbie! The man called over his shoulder. I need to get to a hospital, I stammered. I could feel myself getting ready to pass out again. Yeah, yeah, of course. We try calling 911, but there's nothing up here remotely close to a signal. Let me get my girlfriend and we'll help you into our car. She's up by the road calling for your dog. What's its name? Dog? Yeah, we found a dog whistle on you and figured you had a dog in the car with you. She's been up there blowing that thing like crazy. He now stood up and looked toward the road. 
Debbie? Shit, she was up there just a minute ago. I started to laugh and eased myself back onto the grass. Debbie isn't there anymore, buddy. Probably in someone's belly right now. I slowly turned my head and peered into the darkness beyond the tree line of the wooded area near me and all along the road. Already, I could see their shiny eyes appearing as they crept closer. And that was Human Vultures by author Frederick Pangborn. A good reminder that sometimes it's better to just stay on the highway. To hell with Google Maps. They'll send your ass right off a cliff. A little about the author. Frederick Pangborn is a short story horror author with just over 100 stories written, with the majority of them in publication. His two latest anthologies, Hellish Consequences and Dreamers of the Tomb, can be found on Amazon. A retired law enforcement officer and former U.S. Marine, he's happily retired in Florida. Check the show notes for a couple of links to Frederick's stuff. Remember, when you support our authors, you support us too. Thanks, Frederick. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at chillintalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. Just stay in the center lane and keep it right at the speed limit. And don't turn off anywhere funny. I'd like to say hello and thank you to my newest patrons. Jackie Terry, Darren Dahl, Wayne Prince, Joshua Passman, and Akira. Thank you all very much from the bottom of my heart. And welcome to the club, y'all. Chester's eating good these days. So, Jackie Terry, Darren Daw, Wayne Prince, Joshua Passman, and Akira. May the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. Any wind at all would be pretty damn refreshing right now, to be honest. Either way, go fuck yourselves. <laughs>
Good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.